Now, as we start, um, one of the things I've been thinking about in our church values is that the reason that we have these values as a church is partly because we think that they embody something of what it means to be human. So we, th- we think these values help are things that all human beings need and are called to have. So, for example, when we say that we want to be a church that is rooted in the Word, that's because we believe that all human beings need to be hearing God's voice. Because that's what Jesus says to us. He says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. So part of being human is hearing God's voice. When we say that as a church we want to be dependent in prayer, that's because we think part of being human is learning to depend on the God who created us. We think that's the way that God's created us to be. When we say last week, when we're talking about proactive mission together, we believe that that's important because we believe that part of what it means to be human is to have a purpose and a mission and something that we're going after. And the same is true for this week as well. When we say we want to be a church that's intentional about authentic community, we say that because we think that's part of what it means to be a human being. We believe that human beings were created to enjoy meaningful community with other human beings. And as I kick off, I just want to ask you a question. And that question is, how do you feel about your relationships? Quite a personal question. I won't ask you to answer it now, although I'd be interested in hearing uh, throughout the rest of our, uh, sometimes during the week, if people want to chat with me. How do you, how do you feel like your relationships are doing? You know, your, your, your family, how, how do you think your family relationships are going? Your, your friendships, how, when you think about your friends, when you think about them, how, how do you feel about those? How about, how about within church? If you're part of Grace Church, if you'd say, how do, I, how do I think my relationships within Grace Church are going? How, how would you feel about that? Now, now, that last one is something that I hear a lot of people talking about. A lot of people will talk to me during the course of the day about how they feel about the relationships that they have within church. And I guess what I want us to explore this afternoon is as we look at how Paul talks about the relationships he has with other Christians, how does that help us to think about the kind of relationships we have and also the kind of relationships that we need or that we want. Often when we talk about this value, intentional about authentic community, people are always like, oh, it's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? And like just a random collection of words that you've thrown together. Um, and people will often like uh, say, say kind of like, what was it meant to mean? And so just as we kick off, I just want to set, I just want to very quickly say what it's meant to mean. Because I don't think it's that complicated. It's three words that you need to understand in order to understand that phrase. Okay? Community. Now, by community, we mean meaningful relationships with other human beings, or, to take the Bible's language, family. That's the language the Bible always uses, brothers and sisters. That's that's repeatedly the way that the the, the New Testament talks about relationships within the church, talks about its family, and primarily brothers and sisters. So when we say community, that's what we mean. So we mean relationships where we relate to each other as family, as brothers and sisters. Intentional means that we believe we actually have to do something to make those relationships happen. We don't believe that if we just leave, leave ourselves and other people to their own devices, we'll just all come together and live happily ever after. Because that's not the human story. The human story is that ever since we rebelled against God, human beings actually pull apart as much as they pull together. And that's why any relationship that you, you have is challenging at times. So when we say that we want to be intentional about authentic community, what we're saying is we don't think this just happens. 
We believe we actually have to move towards it. We have to want it. We have to pursue it. And then authentic, when we say that we want it to be authentic, we simply mean that we can all put a lot of effort into trying to make ourselves appear a certain way. We do it all the time. And you'll probably do it in certain contexts, whether it's work or friendship groups or um, with specific people. You'll put a lot of effort into like, how do I want to come across in this setting? Who do I want? How do I want to appear, appear to be? And what we're saying is that we want to try and avoid that as much as we can and we want to be as real to who we are as we can be. And to take the stuff that Jesus is really hot on hitting again, we want to avoid against, we want to hit, avoid hypocrisy. Jesus is really clear. Religious people prone to hypocrisy. That's what he just says again and again. If you're, kind of, if you're the kind of person who's going to be here this afternoon, you're going to be tempted to be hypo- hypocritical. That's, that's in all likelihood going to be one of the things you're going to battle with. Jesus is really clear about that. It's one of the things that he criticised the religious people of his day for again and again. And what we're saying is we want it to be authentic. We don't want it to be hypocritical. Can someone buzz the door, please? Thanks. So when we put those words together, that's what we're trying to communicate. The kind of relationship we want is family. We believe that we need to be intentional, so we need to work towards it. It doesn't just happen. We don't just sit back and wait for community, for family relationships to happen to us. And we want it to be authentic. We want to avoid hypocrisy. And so this week, we're going to dig into that value by looking at what kind of community and what kind of relationships Paul has with his church in Corinth. Um, so let, let's, get, let's get to it. So 2 Corinthians 7, I'm going to just read the first couple of verses from this uh, for us. And then I'm just going to chat about that for a little bit. Make room for us in your heart. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I've said, I've said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I've spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I'm greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. Now, I just want to pause there. We'll, we'll look at the rest of the chapter in a minute. But I just want to pause there and just unpack from those few verses the kind of relationship that Paul has with these Corinthian Christians. I'm going to suggest that there's a few things that we see here. The first is, we see that Paul's relationship with other Christians is one which he expects to be one of reciprocal affection. Reciprocal affection. Because he starts this section by saying to the Corinthians, he says, make room in your hearts for me. You see, he wants the Corinthians to view him affectionately. It's an invitation for them to love Paul and view him affectionately, to welcome him into their lives and into their affections and into their hearts. He's encouraging them. He's saying, don't be distant from me. Don't be separated from me. There's clearly been some sort of conflict between the Corinthians and Paul, which we'll talk a bit about later. And what he's saying is, don't allow that to create a barrier, but but make room in your heart for me. He wants them to have this close, loving relationship. It's tender language, that. Calling on these Christians to make room in their hearts for him. But what I want you to notice is that it isn't a one-way street. So Paul doesn't say, oh, you guys, you need to make room in your hearts for me. He doesn't simply say that, because what does he say in verse 3? He says that he's already made room in his heart for them. He says, you have such a place in my heart that I would live or die with you. See, it's reciprocal. It it runs both ways. He's saying, just as I welcome you, view you affectionately, 
I'm tender towards you and loving towards you. That's what I want you to be towards me. You see, it's reciprocal. It goes both ways. That's what he thinks Paul expects Christian community, that family-like relationship to work. Now, now this, is, this is important because as Christians, we are called to love everyone. That's what we're called to do. And it is possible to love someone who doesn't love you. Jesus is the great exemplar of this. He's the one who truly lives out. He's the one who loves those people, even as they are nailing him to the cross. See, it is possible to love someone who doesn't love you. That's, that's an expectation Jesus has of his followers. But that is not the expectation that, Jesus, that um, we see Jesus unpacking in terms of what Christian community looks like, what a church, how a church should function. That's not what relationships between Christians should look like. Now, these should be two-way relationships. And this is why Christians are again and again called to love one another, bear one with one another, carry one another's burdens, forgive one another. You see the phrase again and again? One another. It goes both ways. We, we do, I do it for you, you do it for me. It's, it's one anothering. You see, Paul says that Christian relationships, they're reciprocal. I make room for you in my heart, you make room in your heart for me. To put it as simply as I can, Christian community should be a place where you love and where you are loved. Both of those things should be happening within Christian community. But of course, if we're only interested in being loved, if all of us just sit around in church going, just love me, then no one's getting loved. Because no one's doing the loving. And it goes the other way. If all of us just want to love other people, but none of us want to be loved, then no one's getting loved. It's reciprocal. It's a place where I love you and you love me. Where I make room in my heart for you and you make room in your heart for me. That's the first thing I want us to see. Christian community, when we talk about this, what we're talking about is reciprocal affection for each other. A care, a love, a concern. And you see that again and again in the way the New Testament talks about Christian relationships. It's one another. It goes both ways. And now the second thing that we see, uh, I want us to see in this section that Paul pulls out, is he, he says that he hasn't done anything to harm them. So you give this list at the start. He says, I haven't wronged you. I haven't corrupted you. I haven't exploited you. Now, you might think, Okay, sounds, sounds pretty obvious. Of course, Christian community shouldn't be a place where people are wronging each other and exploiting each other and corrupting each other. Yeah, seems, seems obvious. But I just want us to remember that those three elements are a normal part of lots of human communities. Let's not be naive about this. There are plenty of human communities where people are primarily concerned about how, can, how we can exploit the people within it. So there's plenty of people who will build community in order to sell certain things or build more influence or achieve more of what they want. They're places of self-interest where primarily what we're trying to do is use other people to achieve what it is that we want. There's plenty of communities like that out there. There are plenty of communities out there where people use their position to wrong others and within which people are corrupted. 
And if we're honest, that can happen even within churches. Churches are not immune from this. Church history and church present is full of churches where um, people within those churches have exploited the people within that church. They've been primarily concerned about how can I get as much money off them as I can? How can I build as much of my own influence as I can? How can I achieve the goals that I have maybe as a, a leader within the church? And how can I use these people to get there? Church history and church present is full of that. So, so when Paul says he hasn't done that, that's not a given. Lots of churches will do that. And churches are also at a place where people are wronged. Again, the history and present of churches is full of people who've used their positions of power and they've, they've wronged other people within them. Churches are also a place where people, many people have been corrupted. Often by false teaching. So people are just teaching stuff that isn't in the Bible or by inappropriate kind of conduct or expectations. And I guess it's just a warning for us as a church. We have to be careful that we're not like that. We shouldn't just take it as given, oh, well, we'll never be like that. We'll never be the kind of church that wants to exploit people or that wrongs them or corrupts them. Because loads of churches are. There's no particular reason why we will be immune to that other than a reliance on God and his grace working in us. It's easy to fall into a pattern of church, into a view of church which is dominated by self-interest. What do I get out of this? How can I use the people within the church to get what I feel like I need and what I feel like I want? And where this happens, we will often be prone to using others, exploiting them, even wronging them, because we've been, become unconcerned about their good and more concerned about how do I get what I want out of this community. Let me, let me just take a, a more kind of normal example. So you, you, get, you get the big examples. People in churches who abuse positions of power uh, for self-interest. You, you get it. You've all read about them in the newspaper. You all know about them. Let me give you something close to home. It's easy for us as a church or for Christians within the church to, to corrupt each other. Let me, let, me give you, let me give you an example of the way this works. Often human beings are prone to do that because when we're doing something that perhaps we feel that we shouldn't or we feel a bit guilty about, one of the things that can make us feel better is getting someone else along to do that with us. It kind of feels like it legitimizes it. Let me give you an example. Imagine that you're in a church and you, what you like to do is you like to, I don't know, drink too much. So you're, you're somebody who likes, to, who likes to get drunk on a Saturday night, Friday night, whatever night. The night's not important. Um, but, you know, that's, that's kind of where you are. You're somebody who likes, likes to drink too much. Now, often what can happen within churches it is you can feel kind of, oh, I'm not sure how people in the church feel about that. And what can happen is you can invite someone else in, and once another Christian is there getting drunk with you, that has now legitimized it in your mind. Oh, well, they do it, and they're a Christian, so it must be fine. Of course it's fine, because, you know, they do it, they're a Christian, I'm a Christian. It's fine, you can be a Christian and do this. And what we've done is we've walked away from Jesus' plain teaching that we're to avoid getting drunk and instead be filled with the Spirit. And what we've done is we've now corrupted someone else because now they think, oh, well, that's fine. All Christians do it. You see, it's easy to do. It's, this isn't something that just happens out there. It's something that can happen in here. So we've got to be careful. When Paul says, I haven't exploited anyone, I haven't wronged anyone, I haven't corrupted anyone, we've got to think, well, how do we do that? How might we be using our influence over someone else that, in a way that actually corrupts them rather than building them up? That actually drives them to live a life contrary what God, to what God calls them, rather than consistent to what God calls them to do. So, 
Paul says that Christian community is reciprocal. It, it cares about the good of others. So it works on how do we not exploit and wrong and corrupt other people. We're conscious about how do we do good to others in this community. And the third thing he says is that it's honest. Look at, he, he says this, this great line in this section. I've spoken to you with great frankness. Great frankness. Paul talks of this community as one of honesty, of frankness. That's part of what we mean when we say that we want this community to be authentic. We mean we want it to be honest. People speak with frankness. Now, I think we've got to hear this because it's easy to mistake flattery for concern and affection. Easy to confuse those two things. And if we're honest, it's especially easy in a world dominated by social media. We confuse the person who likes all of our posts with a close friend who's doing us good. We confuse the person who's always like, you're so great, love the picture. We confuse that for a meaningful, uh, healthy relationship. We've we've confused flattery with uh, affection and love. They are not the same thing. In fact, the Bible says again and again, we should beware the people who just flatter us. If someone's just always telling you how great everything you do is and how great you are, the Bible says be careful of that. Be careful of that. You see, we love it because it makes us feel great. And that can make us view that person affectionately. And often the opposite is true. So when somebody now says, oh, I'm not, I'm not sure about that, we can view that as incredibly hostile. It's like an act of aggression towards me. Like, how dare they not like my post? How dare they suggest that my view on that thing isn't exactly right? You see, we've got it so out of, out of kilter. We think the person who says, oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, they love us. But that person, that person must hate us because they dared to suggest that I shouldn't have done that thing or shouldn't have said that thing. Just not at all how the Bible sees any kind of friendship, but a specifically Christian community. We speak with frankness with one another. Let me, let me be as clear as I can. We don't need people around us who are simply going to approve of and affirm everything we do. Just not what we need. We don't need people to just be surrounded by people who just go, yeah, that's so great. We are, like, I'm really glad, yeah, you're definitely making the right decision there. Because we're already making those decisions and we already think those things are great. So that hasn't taken us anywhere. We need people who will push against it. They'll say, are you sure? They'll say, well, have you thought about this? Oh, I'm not, I'm not quite sure you've got that bit right. See, we end up exactly the same people if everyone just affirms everything we say and do. We're not changed. Because everyone's just like, yep, that's great. You see, that's not the kind of community that will help us grow. It's not the kind of community that will last. And it's not the kind of community that we ultimately need or want. That's what I want to suggest. It's not what you actually want. It can feel like something you want, but I want to suggest you want something more than like. So what does Christian community look like? It looks like reciprocal affection, a concern for each other's goods, and an honesty and frankness with each other. That, that's what Paul says that his relationship with the, these Corinthian Christians has looked like. And I wonder how that sounds to you. So as you hear that, as I've been talking about that, I wonder if you go, if you think of that as something you would want. I wonder as you're here and you hear what this community is supposed to be like and you imagine what it would be like living as part of that community. I wonder if you think, I, I don't really want that. Or maybe you think, 
I'm just not sure that's possible. And maybe you think, oh, it just sounds a bit much. Can we not just have, like, back to those relationships where we're like, we eat scones? Or, or, or you think, it sounds good, but I don't think I could ever achieve that. Like, I've kind of, I've kind of tried, I've been there, I've had it, and it's just, I just, I'm not sure it's really achievable. And I wonder if you've been around Grace Church for a while, I wonder how you think we're doing at that. Maybe you go, oh yeah, I hear you talk about this sort of stuff. But like, I don't really seem to experience those kind of relationships here. Like, yeah, you talk about it and you say you want these honest relationships and reciprocal affection, but it's not been my experience there. Well, well, before we kind of dive into kind of thinking about all the ways that we might fail at this, I want you just to be realistic about what this is going to look like and what this is going to feel like. And we're going to do that by reading Paul, the rest of this section here. Because when you hear Paul's experience of it, I think it helps us think about ours. This is what Paul says. I'm going to read from verse 5 down to, down to the end. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while, yet now I'm happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful, as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance at least to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you prove yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we are especially delighted to see how happy Titus was, because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you've not embarrassed me, but just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I'm glad I can have complete confidence in you. I don't know, as you were reading that, if you managed to pick up what seems to be going on here. So what seems to be going on here is there's been this, Paul's heard stories about Corinthians and they've got him worried. He's become concerned about them, how they're getting on, what's going on there. And so he seems to have sent Titus over to the Corinthians with a letter for them. And this letter seems to have been fairly direct. When he says, I, I, spoke, I speak with frankness, it appears that this letter was a, a frank letter. And so he sent this letter to Titus, but now he's worried about how are they going to receive that letter? Like, what are they going to make of it? And so he sent it, but he's kind of like unsure, like, are they going to hate me? Are they going to, uh, what are they going to, how are they going to treat Titus? How are they going to respond to this? Is he going to do more harm than good? He's unsure about it, and so he's worried about it. And then at some point, Titus has returned, and Titus has come back, and Paul has been encouraged to hear that actually they've received that letter well, that although it did cause some kind of shockwaves, it seems, in the community. Ultimately, it's brought about good and repentance, and they're still affectionate towards Paul, and they've cared for Titus well. You see, that's, that's kind of the backstory that seems to be going on here. But what I want you to notice, and I'm sure you did as you were reading it, is that Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church is not an easy one. 
This relationship of reciprocal affection, longing for their good and frankness, is not easy for Paul. You get a sense of it. He sent this letter, and now he's not sure how to feel about it. Like, does he regret it? Maybe sometimes he wishes he hasn't sent, hasn't sent it. Was it too harsh? Was it going to be understood? Would it do more harm than good? You get this sense, uh, you get this picture almost of Paul anxiously looking out the window every day, just hoping that, Timothy, that Titus is going to come back, longing to hear, because all the time he's not heard, he's worried about it. How are they going to have received it? Did they understand it? Was it helpful? How do they feel about Paul now? And then he hears at some point that the letters hurt them, and now, now he really starts to worry. He's like, and I heard it did hurt you. And so now he's thinking, well, was it the right thing to do? Did I say the right thing? Did I get that right? You get this sense of, I, I think you get this sense here of a really difficult few months for Paul. Real anxiety, fear. He wonders if he's going to regret having sent it. When you see the language Paul uses around this relationship, there's regret and sorrow. He talks about fears within. He talks about feeling downcast. This has been hard for Paul. Some of you may know what that feels like. Some of you might find yourself constantly second-guessing things you've said to people. Lying in bed, agonizing over, did I say the right thing? How did they take it? What's it going to mean for our relationship? Will we ever recover from this? Does it now think I'm an idiot? Just lying in bed, worrying about the things that you said. Much like Paul seems to be doing about this letter that he wrote. Some of you will know Something of the sorrow when something that you've done or said to someone else has hurt them. When someone's been hurt by something that you said or did. And you felt the pain of that. Some of you will have known the sorrow the other way. You will have known what it feels like to be hurt and, um, uh, and damaged by something someone says to you. Some of you will know what it feels like to be let down by someone who you trusted. Some of you will know the sorrow which can come from relationships breaking down, from feeling alone and disappointed by others. Some of you will know the fear and anxiety of beginning to get close to someone and constantly worrying, are they going to let me down? Is this going to last? Are they finally going to see what I'm really like and want nothing to do with me anymore? Some of you will know how that feels. And the problem is, that those experiences, those experiences of feeling that pain and sorrow, they can lead to us wanting to protect ourselves. That's how we react to them often. We don't like feeling like that. I don't like lying in bed second-guessing what, what I've said. And so isn't it just easier if I just don't get close to anyone? Don't rely on anyone, then you can never feel let down. Don't confront anyone, because then you'll never have conflict. Don't say anything meaningful, because then you'll never have to lie awake worrying about something you said. Don't learn to love and respect anyone, because then you can always ignore anything they say if you don't like it. You see, because it's hard, because it brings fears and anxieties and regret that Paul talks about here, because it leads to that inner turmoil, we go, I want to protect myself from that. So let's just not bother with that. 
But here's the problem with that. Paul does experience those things, all of those things in this community, but he also experiences a whole host of other things. That's what I love about this passage. It's this like random mess of like emotions that are like extreme on all levels. Look about look at some of the things he says he also experiences. In verse 7, he says he experiences joy. He says he gets to hear of the Corinthians' concern for him and their longing for him. He says his joy is greater than ever. Yes, there's sorrow. Yes, there's fear. Yes, there's regret. Yes, there's that inner turmoil. But there's also a greater joy than he's ever had. There are few joys in life quite as profound as the joy we find from knowing that somebody loves us. That they're there for us. That they care for us and that they will be there for us. That's why there's deep joy in that. That's why when somebody says, I love you, you feel like you're walking on the clouds for a while. That's why when someone shows that they're committed to you by walking through a hard time with you, that's why that is a a deeply joyful experience. Paul says, yeah, it was hard and there was sorrow and there was fear and there was anxiety, but there was some of the greatest joys I've ever experienced when I found out how you cared for me, how you cared for Titus. He also says he found comfort in these relationships. Paul, in this letter, has already talked about God as the God of all comfort. And here, he he says, but not just that, he says that God's comfort has been experienced through God's people comforting him. Titus was comforted and refreshed by the Corinthian church, and then Titus comforts Paul. So yes, Paul experiences stress and regret, but he also experiences comfort. There are times in all of our lives where we just need someone to comfort us. We need someone who's there who can help us and comfort us through those difficult times. Paul says that's what he experienced in these relationships. In addition to that, he says that these relationships brought him delight and happiness. I love this idea. I've been thinking about it a lot this week. You see, what's the delight that he experiences here? The delight he experiences is in finding that people he cares for and loves have responded well to what he said and are now growing more like Christ. The the delight that that he experiences here and the happiness he experiences here is from knowing that Titus went there and was refreshed by it. This is where what experiences happiness and delight from. Now, do you see what happens here? When you have loving relationships with people, then, when good things happen to them, you share in that delight. You share in that happiness. You share in that joy. Other people's joys become your joys. Other people's happiness becomes your happiness. When you don't love other people and you don't have that mutual affection for them, what happens is you look at those things with envy. You think, oh, I want that. You look at them with a sense of resentment. Oh, well, how come they get that and I don't get that? See, if you don't have those relationships, good things happening to other people doesn't bring you delight and happiness. But when you do, when you love someone else and they love you, then you, you get so much joy and happiness out of when good things happen to them. You see, if you don't ever build those relationships, you can never experience delight and happiness in other people's delight and happiness. Because it means nothing to you. So, This is what we find in these kind of relationships. We find comfort and joy and happiness. 
See, in all of this, you've just got these extremes of emotion. You've got fear and anxiety and regret and sorrow. You've also got joy and happiness and comfort. But actually, there's something more important than all of those that Paul loves in this. The reason these relationships matter is not is about much more than that. Ultimately, the reason Paul ends up not regretting the letter he sent is not because of the joy it brought him, nor the joy it brought them, but because it led to their growth. Yes, it brought them sorrow, but actually sorrow does not mean something's not working. Sorrow can be a good thing if it bears good fruit. And this sorrow did bear good fruit. Because first, it bore the fruit of repentance. That's what he says. He says, yeah, you were, you were made sorrowful by it and you were sorry about that, but that led you to repentance. We should be sorry when we have done things which cause pain to other people or which hurt other people. We should be sorry when we do things that, um, that reject God and walk away from him. We should be sorry when we do things that hurt and damage ourselves. We should be sorry about those things. That's not the wrong reaction. But it's only the right reaction if it then leads to repentance. That's what Paul says here. He couldn't say it more clearly. He says there's a godly sorrow. And what does that godly sorrow look like? It's when you feel bad about something and then you repent of it so that you don't regret it anymore. But he says there's another kind of sorrow that's not godly that leads to death. What's that sorrow? Sorrow that doesn't lead to repentance. I want to be as clear about this as I can. There is nothing noble, there is nothing godly, There is nothing super spiritual or Christian about just feeling bad about something you've done. There's nothing good about that. If all you do is beat yourself up about something that you've done, feel terrible about it, there's nothing impressive about that. There's nothing godly about doing something bad and then just wallowing in self-loathing and guilt. That's what Paul describes as a sorrow that leads to death. Now, feeling bad about something is only godly when it leads us to repentance, when it leads us to confess that sin to God and find the forgiveness he offers. When it leads us to experience the new life he offers and begin to turn away from those ways of life, then it's godly. So, this relationship that caused this pain and this sorrow actually led these Christians to repentance and therefore to find the salvation God offers. But it actually brought growth in so many areas. He goes on to list a whole host of other ways that it brought growth. It brings them an eagerness to clear themselves, which allows the relationship to be rebuilt. It brings clarity to what's actually happened there. It brings them in them, it grows in them a concern for others and for themselves. It leads to them paying attention to how they were living and what they were doing to an earnestness rather than a passiveness. It leads to a concern for justice, that just as they want to be treated fairly, they now long for other people to be treated fairly. It led to obedience, it shakes them out of their sinful and rebellious behaviours. There's so much fruit that is borne by this difficult letter, by this hard relationship. This loving relationship that led to this letter and to the strain that was under the relationship, that made it possible for the Corinthian Christians to grow and for Paul to experience a whole host of joys he'd have never been able to enjoy without it. Let's wrap this up. We're intentional about authentic community of this church because we believe it's a good thing. We believe it's a good thing. But that's not the same as saying we believe it's an easy thing. 
As you read through that, do you get the impression that Paul was just having the time of his life? You get the impression that Paul was just like, oh, this is just so great. I love writing these kind of letters. This brings such joy to my heart. And I love agonizing over how they're going to be received and how people are going to take to them. You don't get any sense of that. We believe it's good because, yes, there's deep joys. Yes, there's an opportunity for growth. But that's not the same as saying that we will never find it stressful or unsettling. But here is my fear. My fear is that we're going to be so committed to protecting ourselves from the pain and discomfort of those kind of relationships that we shut ourselves off from the joys and benefits which can only come through them. That's my fear. That's my fear for us as a church. That's my fear for each one of you. You'll become so committed to protecting yourself from ever feeling anxious or unsettled or like you've done something that you regret or sorrowful. You become so committed to protecting yourself from those that you will rob yourself of the deep joys and the opportunities for growth that can only come through those kind of relationships. This is, this is what I think it looks like. We are so committed to protecting ourselves from the sorrows which come from loving relationships which disappoint or which end that we refuse to get close to anyone. But the problem is that the sorrows still come And now we find ourselves crying alone with no one there to comfort us. We're so committed to avoiding the stress and anxiety which comes from trying to relate to other people that we keep everyone at arm's length. And then we find ourselves longing to feel loved with no one there to say those words. We're so committed to avoiding any sort of confrontation that we never get to experience the delight of seeing someone else grow and change for the better. We're so committed to never being challenged that we avoid any relationships where we might be, but then we find ourselves looking in a mirror, frustrated with ourselves, with no one around us to help us find our way, to help us think about what growth might look like. We're so committed to never admitting that we've done anything wrong, that we push everyone away. We still find ourselves alone, weighed down by guilt, with no one around to help us turn that sorrow into repentance. (laughs) Now, I know there will be some of you here who don't believe that these kind of relationships are possible. I don't know what proportion it is, but my guess is quite high. I know there'll be some people here who may think they're possible, but are just, you're just unconvinced they're a good thing. They just cause more hassle than they're worth. This week, I'm just pleading with you. Don't give up. Don't give up on deep, meaningful, reciprocal, honest, loving relationships. Because although they'll cause pain, and although they'll cause stress, and although at times they will be hard, if you do give up on that, you'll be robbing yourself of some of the deepest joys and the most transformational experiences you can ever have. We're going to finish. We're going to finished by uh, reminding ourselves of Christ's mercy. You see, 
Jesus is the one who truly relates to us like this. Jesus is the one who is truly willing to experience all the sorrows and all of the pain that come from loving someone deeply. And as we remember that, we're going to go to Jesus, we're going to find his forgiveness, and in that we're going to find strength to build the kind of relationships he calls us to do. So this is what we're going to do as we finish. We're going to sing of our need for and our reliance on Christ's mercy for us. Mercy in our lives, mercy in our relationships. And then, while the music carries on playing there, we're going to go into a time of communion. So if you are somebody who knows Jesus, who follows Jesus, who loves him, who is committed to following him, I'm going to encourage you to just come up to the front, take some wine, take some grape juice, and remember that Christ's death was for you. And then on the back of that, we're going to sing about the transformed lives that that brings about. So 